0: Hey everyone, Meet Kevin here. Welcome back to the 10th episode of the Meet Kevin Report. And a quick note, until Friday the 3rd, thanks to so many emails we got from those of you asking, we have briefly extended the coupon code. It's the final coupon code for the programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below. 11.59, Friday the 3rd. Let's talk today about the Fed, but we're also going to talk earnings and what's going on with China, Kathy Wood and a lot of other information. But obviously today is a Fed day and that is going to be the big catalyst that everybody is focused on today. And so, Uh, Some of the things that we're going to be paying attention to are going to be my thoughts on uh, inflation, my thoughts on uh, what the Fed might do today. And I think that'll be pretty critical is trying to guess, okay, what do we think the Fed's going to pull off? And how might we want to be positioned going into the Federal Reserve's FOMC meeting? They started their meeting yesterday. Uh, They end it today. They end up releasing a statement at 11 a.m. Pacific time. And after they release their statement at 11 a.m. Pacific, which I'll be covering live on the channel here, which we're expecting a 25 basis point hike from. After that, we're expecting some insight from them uh, into what the ultimate course of rate hikes will be. And so we'll talk about that. Uh, But I think first, it's useful to look into what we've got going on leading into the meeting. And uh, that's some of the economic data and some of the earnings that we've been paying attention to. Personally, I think paying attention to earnings is one of the most important things that you can do to really understand what's going on in the economy because ultimately, You know, you could get numbers like the unemployment report and realize that it's lagging what's going on in the economy by many months. Or you could look at things like earnings calls where CEOs and executives of companies that actually make up the foundation of our economy and provide goods and services to consumers who make up 70% of the economy, the insights they provide us and the warnings and red flags they give us. I personally really enjoy paying attention to those. Uh, and so, uh, that's uh, that's what we'll spend some time doing to try to understand, okay, where, where's maybe the Fed going to go uh, directionally today? Look, one of the first things we've got to realize is we know that earnings are coming down, right? For example, EA fell short of estimates, disappointing outlook, six-week delay in their Star Wars Jedi Survivor game, delaying it back to April, which is Q2. Uh, And you've got a lot of competition in the game space. Hey, you know, there's also a lot of competition in the chip and hardware space. You look at Western Digital, for example, uh, thankfully got a $900 million investment from the Apollo Global Management Group. And then you look at the advertising space, you got problems over there too. Look at, for example, Snap. They reported their first ever quarterly revenue decline. And not only did they report their first ever quarterly revenue decline, but that decline is expected to be between two and 10%, that is a massive cut. And so you're seeing revenue projections at companies plummet across the board, but it's not just the revenue projections, it's also what they're saying in their calls that's very important to pay attention to. And so in this uh, video, we'll be pulling up some of the earnings calls and going through what do we think companies actually have to say about inflation and how does that compare to what the Federal Reserve is up to and what the Federal Reserve believes? quite useful because then you could see, are they on the same page actually, or are there dislocations? But worth continuing on Snap for a moment to say, look, This is a company that got extremely bloated with a lot of staff for money losing projects. And one of the most common things that happens at businesses is businesses ultimately think they can do everything. And they try to get their hands in 27 different cookie jars and then they end up chasing projects that just are not profitable. And so finally, Snap is suggesting that they're working on cutting those revenue and money losing projects uh, analysts were expecting 1.48% growth at Snap, and uh, the company, again, ending up uh, projecting a 2 to 10% decline uh, in growth, still getting hit by the Apple transparency tracking or tracking transparency updates, which is sort of the removal of uh, a lot of the advertiser data that companies like Pinterest, Meta, and uh, uh, Snapchat end up using to provide analytics to their customers, so that way their customers can more accurately target uh, uh, individuals that they want to sell goods and services to. Now, uh, one of the companies that I actually believe is is solving the disaster of the Apple uh, tracking transparency update is uh, a company uh, called Trade Desk. And they actually came up with the UID 2 advertising sort of non-cookie cookie, if you will. That's sort of the easiest way to describe it. And it's basically Instead of uh, gathering user information and tracking the user around the internet, the most simple way to think about it is, hey, look, if certain users behave in a certain way, then they're probably in group A of people. If uh, you know another percent, 10% of customers behave in another way, well, they're probably part of group B. And if another 10% behave a different way yet again, then they're probably part of group C hey, advertisers, you might like to sell your women's clothing to Group A, (laughs) right? And so rather than individually identifying people, UID2 helps identify the behavior uh, of people. Uh, And by tracking the behavior of people, not individually identifying people, by tracking the behavior of people, Advertisers can potentially uh, properly target their advertisements. And this is sort of a solution that uh, Trade Desk came up with. They uh, released that as uh, an open source tool for everybody uh, in the advertising industry to use. And I think Trade Desk is one of those companies that's actually trying to solve the disaster of uh, advertising uh, that uh, that's basically companies have been dealing with for now almost the last two years, thanks to the Apple transparency tracking update. But uh, bad revenues, uh, you know, in, in a recession aren't uh, or bad revenue forecasts in a recession aren't the biggest surprise. Uh, although I'll tell you this, 69% of S&P 500 companies, at least according to Earnings Insight as of a few days ago, 69% of companies that reported earnings actually reported positive earnings surprise. That is a positive EPS, earnings per share surprise and 60% of them reported a positive revenue surprise. So even though it's easy to look and say, oh, everything is bad and guidance is going down and all companies are missing, it's easy to say that. It's easy to make a list of companies that are losing uh, money or or their revenues are going down. Uh, It's a lot harder to actually look at real data. And what does the real data show us? It actually shows that companies aren't doing as bad as the stock market has to some degree been pricing in. In my opinion, this is one of the reasons that after you saw some of the early chip makers' reports, such as Taiwan Semiconductors or Samsung. You actually saw the companies uh, and and their stocks rise rather than fall. This is despite the fact that clearly, there have been large cuts to not only forecasts and revenue. Uh, And this is really, in my opinion, because I, I believe the stock market has been sort of teetering on this idea of, oh no, Q4 earnings could be the worst ever yet. And I'm not entirely convinced that's true. Now, that's not to say that we can't still have worse yet coming in the future. I mean, consider Tesla, for example, it's, it's entirely possible that, uh, that their margins end up worse in Q1 or Q2. In fact, I think that's highly likely than what they reported previously. Uh, and most investors seem to be highly concerned about Q4, whether that was conveniently because they tax loss harvested in December and they just needed a reason to get back in. And once Q4 earnings cleared, they got back in. Or it's for some other reason, I have no idea but the stock has recovered substantially from 100 bucks to about 173 bucks. Now, 175 bucks in pre-market, that's, I mean, if, if you perfectly time the market, which nobody does, uh, with, especially not with your whole portfolio, you'd be up like 73%, 74%, it's remarkable. Uh, it, it, and so you're seeing a lot of that sort of activity uh, in the market where the market's kind of like, oh, things aren't really that bad. And uh, that also sort of helps us wonder, what does that mean for a potential soft landing with the Fed and, and recession versus no recession? Well, uh, <laughs> you know, in, my, in my opinion, this is where it's kind of worth looking at what the warning was we just got from the IMF. So, the IMF actually suggested that a global recession is actually unlikely due to resilient output at the same time as slowing inflation. Now, that's really interesting because this recession has been the most predicted recession ever in the history of recessions, and if we don't end up getting the recession, then it's kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, were the economists just wrong again? And the answer there is, yeah, potentially. Now, uh, this also comes on the backs of obviously France and Germany, suggesting they expect to entirely be able to avoid uh, a recession. Uh, This is despite the fact that Germany did end up getting a negative GDP print for uh, the fourth quarter of 2022, which doesn't exactly reiterate the idea of no recession. Negative GDP prints are obviously the precursor to Being in a recession, given that two quarters in a row of negative GDP typically signals, well, I mean, it it signals a technical recession, uh, and often aligns with a real recessionary environment. But the IMF ultimately sees global growth rising in 2024. Uh, That would be a 3.4% in 2022, a slight dip to 2.9 in 2023, and 3.1 in 2024. So you kind of see this sort of return to growth in 2024, Uh, and uh, ultimately the big concern is, will inflation come down? And who's going to account for most of the growth? And is that growth going to be inflationary? Well, the IMF tells us that it's China and India that are likely to be the major engines of growth next year, potentially together accounting for as much as half of the world's global growth uh, in uh, 2023, and potentially also going forward. So China clearly Something very important we want to pay attention to, uh, especially uh, India as well. Both uh, really enjoying cheap Russian oil to help uh, fuel some of their growth. <laughs> no surprise, because somebody's going to buy the cheap Russian oil. Anyway, uh, we, uh, when, when it comes to China, it's uh, worth making a quick note that uh, China is responsible for 97% of global uh, solar wafer manufacturing. So, uh, when it comes to solar manufacturing capacity, uh, wafers, they're at about 97%. And for the actual polysilicon, which goes into the panels, they're responsible for roughly 80%. And solar cells, they're responsible for roughly 85%. Solar modules, they're responsible for roughly 75%. Whereas, uh, they only represent about 40% of actual solar demand. So, basically... 80% of the entire global supply chain for solar comes from China. So you really want to pay attention to China. Uh, And uh, the the trade tensions that we have between China, I think ultimately makes things a lot more expensive for uh, end consumers, whether that's uh, individual homeowners buying solar, companies buying solar, uh, people trying to trade with China, whatever. Obviously, we've got a government that's very opposed to China uh, essentially free trade trade with China and the fear there is uh, supposedly national security based although we don't know what lobbyists are pushing the agenda that oh absolutely there'll be an invasion with uh, with with China of uh, Taiwan and uh, ultimately we'll be going into some form of World War three if unless we have really tight trade sanctions against China and we prevent them from being able to advance their economy. Who knows? I have no idea, (laughs) but it does seem somewhat uh, ridiculous that here we are in uh, 2023 when we know sanctions, uh, or I should say, um, in in the case of uh, China, uh, trade restrictions, such as tariffs, which are basically taxes on trade, uh, ultimately just end up creating deadweight losses for the economy and end up hurting the end users like consumers by artificially making things more expensive and restricting uh, the proper uh, flow of goods and services. So I think from sort of a free market point of view, a lot of the restrictions are uh, a little wild, but uh, then again, you know, hey, if, if it's a matter of national security, restrictions are okay. Anyway, so uh, look, a lot of negativity around our earnings that we're seeing, it's not even just, uh, uh, you know, the potential negativity that we might end up seeing coming up here with Apple, Amazon, Facebook, a lot of folks uh, sort of holding onto their edge of the seat, uh, their seats to see what'll happen there. Uh, but uh, e- even the earnings calls that we've been getting and earnings reports that we've been getting, a lot of companies uh, are, are uh, expressing concern about uh, economic outlook. Uh, even Pulte Homes, which is a, a home builder in America, is uh, w- refusing to provide any kind of guidance for 2023 other than the first quarter because uh, they're, they're realizing they have no idea how long interest rates are going to stay high. And The reality is <laughs> nobody knows. And I think that's why all of us ultimately like to pay attention to the Fed. And so the Fed is a useful thing to talk about, especially in the context of Michael Burry, given that Michael Burry is now telling us you should sell. That's right, good old Michael Burry again coming out and suggesting sell on Twitter. And this has, a. well, every time Michael Burry says this kind of stuff, he tends to temporarily at least break the internet and everybody talks about Michael Burry, which in fairness, it's worth looking into what his perspective is because it's pretty dang contrarian to what the rest of the market believes. And if we can kind of evaluate Michael Burry's sell warning next to what the Federal Reserve might do, hey... Maybe we can try to understand where Michael Burry is coming from. So, Michael Burry tweeted sell uh, well, yesterday evening. That's all he tweeted, just the word sell, period. Now, what reminds me about sell, period, is that's what I tweeted in January of 2022, and I got the most backlash I've ever seen in my life from people. <laughs> and I'm like, well, things have changed, and when things change, it's important to change your mind. Uh, As unpopular as that might be, it's important for people to wake up and realize the world evolves. And when the world evolves, you've got to change with it. Otherwise, you just end up dying an old fuddy-duddy who refuses to change with the world. So, Michael Burry tweets sell. And when we put together what he's previously said, we kind of get an idea as to why Michael Burry would suggest it's important that now you sell. So, Michael Burry has previously suggested that it is very likely indeed that inflation is going to come down rapidly in 2023. This is a pretty typically accepted scenario right now. It wasn't last year, last year, folks were saying, oh, that's it. Um, the dollar uh, is is, uh, is is going to lose all of its purchasing power, inflation is going to run rampant, and uh, the entire economic system is going to collapse because inflation will be uncontrollable unless we get Paul Volcker. Well, sure enough, so far, inflation is indeed proving to be transitory, that yes, when you print oodles and oodles of money, the tune of $4 trillion of money. Yes, four to six, actually, four to $6 trillion of money. What ends up happening? Yeah, you end up creating inflation. To some extent, that's a good thing uh, because it actually signals that we're so capable of creating inflation. I know that seems wild, but when you have a company or a country like in the, uh, Japan in the 1990s and you print money for 20 years and you can't get inflation up, it's kind of a sign that you probably have larger structural issues in your country that restrain growth, and that's bad. Whether that's an aging population, a retiring population, a population that isn't innovating anymore, leading to more spending on goods and services, whatever it is. The last thing you want is a country that can't create any inflation. That is actually really bad because then you end up having negative growth after negative growth. You encourage people to save their money and not spend it because why spend or invest if ultimately you can't create growth anyway? Think about that for a moment. Why hire an advertiser to help you advertise your company's goods and services if you're not going to be able to grow grow anyway. So everyone turns inward and what happens is you lower the standard of living for everyone. So to some degree, a country being able to still generate inflation, which fortunately for the sake of Japan, Japan's actually finally starting to see some degree of inflation again. uh, The last thing you want is again, being in a deflationary environment where there's, it's impossible to create any kind of inflation. You want some inflation. You just don't want hyperinflation. So now uh, we're in a position where after all of the money printing, good, yes, our economy is still uh, interested in growing, which is good. Uh, And so what we end up having now is what? Well, we've got uh, uh, the idea in the market that yes, inflation is finally proving to be transitory again. We've gotten over the hump of money printing and the supply chain crises and war that led to uh, this sort of inflation, at least the initial impacts of war, given that the war is still going on in Ukraine. And now we expect inflation to rapidly fall. This is very much in line with Michael Burry uh, and, and his sort of commentary. Michael Burry and his commentary is, hey, you know what? Inflation is going to come down. So we can all agree that inflation is likely to come down. This obviously creates a risk because if even the bears say that inflation is going to come down and the bulls are like, yes, inflation is going to come down. Now we have to be really blind or or we have to be really unblinded uh, to the idea that, well, what if it doesn't come down as rapidly as we think, right? It seems that a lot of the market is excited about inflation coming down. Even Michael Burry and the bears are excited about inflation coming down. The question is, what happens next? And what happens next, in my opinion, is why Michael Burry is suggesting that you should sell. Now, there are two tail risks here. Tail risk number one is that inflation doesn't actually fall as much as expected. If inflation ends up staying high because owner's equivalent rents don't end up coming down as quickly as we think, uh, that basically the rental uh, lag of a decline in housing prices, which we've already seen a decline in housing prices and housing rents, if that lag doesn't end up showing or or that result, which is lagged by about six to 12 months, doesn't end up showing up in CPI data because rents start going up again, uh, then that's a problem. Obviously, that would be a problem. Now, you might wonder like, wait, but how how could that work? I mean, if if owners equivalent, if actual rents are coming down, shouldn't CPI rent uh, eventually come down as well? Yes, but it really requires owners uh, or, or actual rents continuing to fall. For example, if CPI rents did this, but actual rents did this well if they continue and cpi basically catches the line you don't necessarily need uh to get a substantial decrease in housing inflation so tail risk number one is inflation doesn't actually come down whether that's because used auto car prices stop falling rents start rising again, housing costs start going up again because financial conditions have loosened. Medical care services, basically super core, which is like medical care services, uh, other healthcare spending, stuff like haircuts. Those are super core services. Uh, Tail risk number one is inflation doesn't come down for for any of those reasons. So it's worth writing down what your risks are and, and knowing risk number one is inflation doesn't come down. Uh, That's the biggest risk, especially since more and more of the market is now pricing in this idea that, oh yes, inflation will absolutely come down. So risk, number one, write it down, inflation doesn't drop as much as expected. Now, there are some good things to that uh, in that uh, all the Federal Reserve has to do, as long as we're trending down, trending down is okay, uh, we don't actually have to get to 2%. And now this blows people's minds, but thanks to flexible average inflation targeting, we know the Fed has a policy of saying as long as inflation averages 2% over time, and this is PCE inflation, which is generally lower than CPI inflation. Look, we're okay with that. We don't actually need to hike uh, until the uh, economy is totally devastated and inflation is actually at 2% because we could just say, hey, we're good with it averaging 2%. Okay, so that's risk number one is inflation doesn't drop as much as expected, and if it doesn't trend down, the Fed can't pull the flexible average inflation targeting or fate hat out of the um, uh, you know out out of their repertoire, so to speak. Uh, the rabbit of fate can't come out of the magician's hat, so to speak. Now, risk number two is is what I call the Burry risk. Okay, so this is the Burry risk. So again, if the base case base case is inflation goes Bye bye, uh, Fed stops hiking and creating job losses because they no longer need to. If that's the base case, then we always want to be aware of where are the blind sides. And right now, blind side number one is inflation doesn't drop as much as expected. But then inf- uh, 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 tail risk number two is the Michael Burry risk. Now, I want to just explain that when we're talking about tail risks, a lot of people who aren't in finance might not be able to visualize that, so let me kind of draw it for you. Tail risks have to do with a typical bell curve distribution in statistics. And this is basically to say that 50%, uh, the 50% of the likely outcome is, is is right here. And then you sort of have standard deviation moves, right? So uh, we, we expect that uh, one third Uh, you know, this represents about 33%. This represents about 67%. Uh, and then you have these tail risks over here that are kind of low likelihoods to happen. So this would actually be like, uh, you know, less than 5% chance over here, a less than 5% chance over here on the right side, right? These are your tail risks. So your tails are the left tail and then the right tail. Uh, so, uh, tail risks, one of the tail risks I believe that we have is the bury risk. And so if the base case is inflation goes bye-bye, Fed stops hiking and creating job losses, the, the, the other risk is the burry risk, which ultimately is, yes, inflation does end up going down. And as inflation plummets, what happens? The Federal Reserve ends up saying, hey, you know what? We can cut rates just like the market expected. Remember, today, the Federal Reserve is expected to hike rates by 25 basis points. That's not a big deal. The market's already priced it in. The Federal Reserve historically, in this particular hiking cycle, has matched exactly what the market has expected almost every single time. Now, whether it's the chicken or the egg that comes first doesn't really matter because all it takes is a text message from Jerome Powell uh, and, and blasting it over, uh, uh, you know, to or, or to a text message to Nick T, who then blasts over the internet to really set expectations. That's all it really takes, right? <laughs> That's literally all it takes. Uh, so, you know, what, uh, what, What again, it doesn't really matter with chicken or egg, uh, whether the Fed follows the market or the Fed creates the market and then follows it. 25 BP is what we're expecting for a hike today. That's the boring part. What everybody cares about is what the Fed does next and sort of projections for what the Fed does next. Burry thinks what the Fed does next is it actually ends up following the market and saying, we're going to pause by uh, potentially May and then we'll end up actually cutting rates by the end of the year. Even though the Fed right now isn't talking about cutting rates by the end of the year, the market is starting to price in the idea that the Fed could cut rates by as much as 1% by the end of the year. And Burry's thesis is that, okay, fine, if inflation goes down, but then you all start cutting rates, then what you'll likely do is induce financial conditions to basically collapse. In other words, uh, well, to become very, very loose, I should say. There are measures of financial tightness, financial conditions indices. The higher they are, the more tight financial conditions are, which would be higher interest rates, lower stock prices. That's an example of high or tight financial conditions. And when the chart falls or collapses, financial conditions are loosening. Usually people use the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index to, to sort of chart that. But anyway... If financial conditions loosen and we start seeing rate cuts, the thesis is, oh, okay, well, everybody's going to go back to spending. Everybody's going to feel rich again. Everybody's going to go YOLO into stock options and meme stocks and profitless companies and start creating profitless business models again, like stupidness, like what we saw with Open Door or Carvana, where, yeah, you end up buying a car through a vending machine. Yeah, because that makes a lot of sense. Or you try to flip homes and don't consider market risk, and you don't buy wedge deals, you don't even buy good deals, you just try to flip homes to try to make a commission on actually flipping the homes. Basically, open door trying to systematize being a real estate agent. It's nutty. Nobody's ever been able to succeed at it. And, and so this is how these, these profitless, money-losing companies end up growing. And really what they are is walking zombies. They're zombies that, that need to die. They're companies that need to go bankrupt. Yeah, because they shouldn't exist. They use capital that should actually be deployed for business models that actually work and, and create a real net benefit to society. And so recessions are actually a healthy thing because they end up killing off bad businesses, but not only do they kill off bad businesses, they end up getting people fired who uh, potentially are an excess of product at their, uh, at the business they work with in. Now, that doesn't mean they suck, but it could mean they suck. You know, some people, they float around in a business because management doesn't want to fire them because it'd be unpopular to fire them, or maybe it change workplace culture or whatever, even if they suck at their job. But in a recession, businesses can just sort of mask that under mass layoffs, and a lot of people end up getting laid off. Some of them were probably really good workers. Some of them probably sucked at their jobs and needed to be laid off. It's that sort of weeding that needs to happen in order for businesses to actually succeed and society to succeed. And and so businesses that suck and employees that suck should go away. (laughs) That's very, very typical. So the problem is the Burry thesis is that because the Fed is likely to cut again, you could end up seeing all of these companies that were supposed to go bankrupt end up staying around. And if those companies that were supposed to go bankrupt stay around, and we go back to the speculation that we used to have, uh, and essentially, people start spending money like they're stupid again, and there's no real pain in the recession uh, because we don't end up having a recession potentially, then what happens? We just end up with a second wave of inflation. That is uh, Michael Burry's uh, essential uh, uh, thesis is we're going to have a second wave of inflation. And the problem with that is if you look at history, which obviously the most dangerous words investing are this time is different. If we look back at, uh, at at history, what do we find? Well, we find in the 1970s, the Federal Reserve was very start stop about what they were doing with interest rates. And that created massive problems because it led people's inflation expectations to plummet. Uh, or I'm sorry, to skyrocket. I want to clarify that. It led people's inflation expectations to skyrocket, not plummet. Their trust in the, the Fed plummeted. And as people's trust in the Fed to control inflation plummeted, their expectations for inflation skyrocketed, which ended up leading to inflation that ran as high as 20%, 18, 18-ish percent. But the Fed had to hike rates to 20%. See, the Fed uses something known as the Taylor Rule, uh, when the Taylor Rule is just basically a formula for suggesting how high should interest rates be. And part of the formula is inflation. Now, the Taylor Rule falls apart when you have negative inflation, when you're in a deflationary environment or a low inflation environment. The Taylor Rule has kind of been failing. It hasn't been that good. But now that we have high inflation, a lot of people are talking about bringing the Taylor Rule back into prominence. And the Taylor Rule has a bias for always keeping the Federal Reserve rate above the rate of inflation. That creates a negative real yield environment. Right now, we're not even there yet. And Jerome Powell himself told us that by the time the Fed stops hiking rates, uh, rates will end up being sufficiently restrictive, which basically implies that the Fed still has to tighten, that it's too early for any kind of pause, given that the rate of inflation is in the 6% region, uh, and the federal funds rate is only at 4.25%. So again, expecting more pain from the Federal Reserve is is what you should expect. But again, Michael Burry says, hey, if, if people start thinking that inflation is falling quickly, uh, then we're, we're just going to get back to a speculative spend environment, that'll induce inflation. The Fed will lose any potential credibility that it even remotely had left. And in such an event, we'll end up with substantially worse inflation than we had the first time, much like in the 70s. You had inflation throughout the mid 70s, but you didn't actually have the crushing inflation and then the crushing blow of 20% interest rates until 1980 and 81 and 82 when we had a crash in the early 80s because we ended up having to get Paul Volkert. Basically, somebody had to put the big boy pants on. Maybe Jerome Powell ends up getting fired. Someone else takes his place, puts on the big boy pants and says, the Fed will exert its dominance again. And they actually destroy the market and throw us into a deep, dark depression this time and not a recession. So that's sort of the, the Michael Burry thesis. Now, Michael Burry has been sort of labeled as somebody who's often more bearish than he is optimistic. And that's okay. There are optimists in the world and there are pessimists in the world. Doesn't mean you can't go have a beer with the person. just means they have a different outlook on the economy than, than you do. And that's okay. But that's essentially Michael Burry's warning, is it doesn't really matter what the Federal Reserve does now. The path the Fed is likely going on is one that will end up leading the Fed to make a massive policy mistake. And so, the way to potentially protect yourself in such an environment is you have to ask yourself, okay, what would happen if Michael Burry ended up being right? Well, how much debt are you in? Uh, what does your income look like? Are you potentially in a situation uh, where where you've run out of money uh, and you're starting to see the market, bear market rally up and you're thinking, okay, this is it. I'm going to go all in to the market and you're even going to go into margin And then all of a sudden, we do end up in six months getting more of a Michael Burry-style scenario playing out. And when that gets priced in, because the stock market likes to try to pre-price things in, well, then you're really screwed. That's sort of the Michael Burry thesis. And that's why he's warning and providing this idea of sell. Now, interestingly, he is doing so on the eve of the Federal Reserve meeting. And that is also leading a lot of people to wonder, okay, uh, why is he so bearish? Is it because he believes... That in order to prevent the Michael Burry scenario, the Federal Reserve has to be really aggressive today. That's possible. And so my thesis on what the Federal Reserve does today is I believe they end up walking a tightrope of not trying to sound dovish, not trying to sound bearish. I think if I was sitting in the Federal Reserve board today, I would be looking at Jerome Powell, and I was, let's say, one of the board members, and we were having a meeting together. I, uh, or, or maybe I'm Jerome Powell, right? And we'd probably be like, all right, guys, look, We know the data's coming in good, all right? We just had ADP numbers that missed. We had the ECI that missed yesterday. We've got nothing indicating a wage price spiral. We've even got Chipotle saying it's becoming easier to hire people now because uh, there's not that much competition anymore for workers and more people are looking for work, which is great. More labor force participation, like everything's going exactly the way we want it. Guys, we're winning. We can't F this one up. Drone, yeah, I gotta go out there. And you got to hold the straight face and pretend like we just need more of this data. That's all you got to do, Jerome. Go out there and tell the world you're not convinced inflation is on its way to 2% yet. You're going to keep tight until you're convinced it's at 2%. You're not convinced yet. And sure, some things are looking optimistic, but that's what we expect because we're winning the game. But... We don't want anyone to think that just because we're winning, we're going to start telling our goalie to go take a coffee break. We're going to fight even harder to make sure we cream the opponents, it being inflation the opponent, right? So so that's sort of my impression of, of what I would think the Federal Reserve will do today. Uh, and it's really because they're trying to prevent the Burry scenario, that this, uh, this idea that everybody's going to go back to spending like drunken sailors because the stock market starts recovering and maybe the housing market starts recovering. And then what happens? You end up inducing another wave of inflation. So I do not think there's any reason to be optimistic, uh, highly optimistic about the Fed today. Now, it's possible that the market is pricing in that the Fed is going to be evil today. I don't actually think that is likely either because the Fed does not want to create a recession if it does not have to. Think about it. The Fed is doing good right now. It's sort of like if, if you're a military, uh, let's say the Fed is, is an army and they're winning the war, why pull out the nuclear weapons and create even more long-lasting damage if you're already winning? If you're winning, just keep doing what you need to do to kind of base, or, or basically just keep doing what got you there which is not going nuclear. So I do not think the Fed wants to go nuclear and destroy the economy today. So I am not very bearish on the Fed today, but I am also not very bullish that Jerome is gonna be like, <laughs> we're done, inflation's over. So if you're YOLOing calls or YOLOing puts, I think you might be playing it wrong today. Uh, I, I think maybe, maybe a way to, to play it is actually you sell straddles you sell both puts and calls to people who are YOLOing on the fed today so you sell a put you sell a call you don't care what direction it goes you just expect volatility to go down now, you want to pick stocks where volatility is actually higher. This is something we often look at in our course member live streams, uh, which keep in mind, I did extend uh, the coupon code to Friday the 3rd. We got quite a few emails of people asking if we could uh, extend it to the 3rd. So we're extending that uh, final coupon code until 11.59 p.m. on the 3rd of February. But look, Bury has a very reasonable thesis. Uh, unfortunately for Bury, I think it's a tail risk. Uh, I think it's a risk that, uh, that is unlikely uh, uh, to, to play out, uh, but, uh, but it could happen. And if it happens, then then he's, uh, you know, he's, he's made his point and, uh, and, and then good for him. But again, I think it's unlikely. Now, one of the things that is a little bit concerning, though, is this particular chart on screen now. This is called the U.S. Cleveland Fed Inflation Now Index. And it's been very accurate at the beginning of the year where it'll actually lead higher CPI changes on a month-over-month basis. So it was accurate uh, in and around the time of February, March. It was accurate when it projected the plummet in April, May. It was pretty accurate when it projected the jump in June and July. Pretty accurate as well when it represented a fall over in August. And it also, I mean, it's been pretty consistent. The Cleveland Fed line is the white boxes. Okay, those are the white bar charts. Uh, and they basically show that the Cleveland Fed estimates inflation before CPI or the blue line come out. So the blue line follows the white line. Well, unfortunately, the Cleveland Fed is now projecting potentially as high as 0.6% month-over-month uh, inflation uh, for the next CPI report. Now, they were, they were way high uh, in October when they were projecting 0.8% of month-over-month inflation. But we did end up having inflation rise from about 0.4% to about 0.45% on that month-over-month basis. So even though magnitude-wise they were wrong, they were correct directionally. And uh, that is leading at least to some concern that probably the most important thing we need to pay attention to is the risk that inflation does not come down. That is, I think, the biggest risk. And I think it's actually bigger than the Michael Burry risk. So this is where I do think having at least some cash on the sidelines is reasonable because I don't think we're going to get a straight down inflation. I think uh, we're probably going to be in a little bit of a bumpy path. But hey, you know what? Uh, So far, things moving pretty optimistically. So things are looking good. Doesn't mean YOLO, uh, but it does seem like things are going in a, in a good direction and maybe the Federal Reserve can, in theory, engineer that soft landing. In my opinion, the soft landing is probably more of because of the inflation and jobs data we're getting now, the base case scenario. Whereas the potential of inflation skyrocketing again is more of a tail risk and a second wave of inflation is more of a tail risk. Uh, so, but then again, maybe I'm being biased uh, in, in an optimistic manner. Either way, I uh, this is sort of, The Michael Burry combined with Fed thesis, I think it's useful to understand that thesis going into the Fed meeting today. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of thinking the Fed is going to be super dovish or super hawkish today, Uh, though uh, we'll clearly want to um, pay very close attention because I think it'll set the stage for uh, all of of our stock market movements really between now uh, and the March FOMC meeting. Now, uh, the March FOMC meeting, at least right now, based on what the Fed is pricing in or the markets are pricing in, uh, is scheduled for March 22nd. So we'll have about a six to seven week break here of no Fed, which I think a lot of people will be excited about. But again, the markets will react based on what they expect the Fed will do in March. In March, we'll also be getting a new summary of economic projections, which we will not be getting today. So important information coming up for why Michael Burry said sell and the federal reserve hope that was helpful and useful now it's also useful i think very much so to talk about earnings Uh, but we did also have a few comments here so i want to see what some of these uh comments are let's go ahead and look at some comments here so we have uh don't you think that because the market may explode to the upside with a 25 basis point hike that may cause powell to do a 50 basis point hike no No, not at all. I I don't think the Fed needs to shock the market uh, solely because they're concerned the market might be excited over 25 BPs. I think 25 BPs is already priced in. Thanks for the $5, by the way. Not only do I think 25 BPs is priced in, but I think the markets care more about what Jerome Powell says. And that's why I think Jerome Powell is likely to be somewhat uh, aggressive, uh, but not too aggressive with his commentary. Uh, And so that's why I'm sort of calling it neutral. Okay. (sighs) Okay. This comment always drives me nuts because it it fundamentally misunderstands what inflation is doing. But then again, fundamentally misunderstanding inflation is very common. Uh, Here's a comment that says, how is inflation transitory when we're still at 6%, which is very high. It's very simple. Inflation is calculated using base effects. When you calculate inflation, you actually compare inflation to the prior year. So if inflation all of a sudden spiked quickly and then started plummeting, just because you're over here, in let's just say you're in February right here, and you're comparing to February of last year, just because inflation is potentially at 6% or 5.9% or whatever it is, does not mean that inflation is still happening. That's why it's really important to look at month over month, week to week data, so you can actually be understanding what's happening in the real world. Looking at year-over-year data is no longer the real world because it ignores the fact that the trend or the trajectory is changing. I believe it is highly inappropriate to suggest that, oh, inflation absolutely can't be transitory because headline inflation is still, uh, is still high. Headline inflation has literally nothing to do with what is happening in the economy today. The headline number literally does not matter. What matters is what's happening today. And what's happening today is inflation is starting to go away. There is not a single earnings call that's implying that inflation is actually expected to stay past the second half of this year. That's not to say that inflation can't rear its head again. It's not to say that inflation won't rear its head again. But look, for example, at Caterpillar. Caterpillar reports that they've had the highest level of parts available in the history of the company that basically they are so ready to fulfill the needs of any company's demands and they're ready to provide more shipments and more products shows you that companies are on standby to do more that supply chains have gotten so strong again that companies now are like great now we fix supply where is the demand let's actually provide more look In the last inflation report, we had month-over-month inflation reads of negative 0.1%. Over the last six months, inflation has averaged averaged less than 2%. I kid you not. Look at the month-over-month changes, and inflation has averaged less than 2% over the last six months. And then I always get the reply where people are like, Oh, but Kevin, costs are still high. My food is still expensive. I get it. Inflation... Can occur and go away. Inflation is not the measure of all your donuts going back to the 99 cent cost they used to be. And now you're pissed that you're paying a buck 20. I get it. But that is not what the Fed cares about. The Fed cares about the change of that price again. So if your donut went from one to a buck 20, that's a problem. And it sucks that you have to pay a buck 20. But just because it's a buck 20 does not mean we still have inflation. Especially if it goes down to a buck 19, or it stays at a buck 20, or even it goes to a buck 21, that is not inflation that people care about, or at least not the Fed. Inflation uh, that, that the Fed cares about is what if that buck 20 now becomes a buck 40 and a buck 60, and you get this sort of inflationary or exponential runaway inflation. That's what the Federal Reserve cares about. Again, inflation is a rate of change measurement. We measure it by comparing to what's happened in the last month, in the last quarter in the last year. And at least so far, it seems that there's been inflection point to the downside, which is fantastic. And as long as that inflection point to the downside continues, we will end up hitting an environment where either we get to 2% average inflation or we actually go negative, which again, Uh, there are risks to that. If rental inflation doesn't come down, services inflation doesn't come down, or housing uh, or or, or, uh, other services like uh, air travel or haircuts or personal services, personal care services, if that sort of remaining inflation remains sticky and it doesn't come down and prices continue to go up, yeah, then we have a problem. But just because you're reading the headline number of what inflation is tells you absolutely nothing about the economy. In fact, what's more important, in my opinion, is that you look at leading indicators of what's going on with inflation. And I believe that leading indicators of what's going on with inflation are are what companies are talking about. Uh, and that could be uh, Procter & Gamble talking about finally seeing lower prices, probably by, uh, uh, will certainly start showing up in their earnings by the second half of the year. Johnson & Johnson saying, yeah, prices certainly went up, but they're expected to moderate by the second half of the year. Uh, McDonald's complaining about paper costs being higher than ever. This is kind of like complaining about the headline inflation number. It's like, oh no, inflation's at 6%, right? The headline inflation is high. Yeah, it sucks. But... When you go look at uh, the International Paper Company, which just reported earnings, and you look at their earnings call, what do you hear? Oh, lumber costs are going down. Fiber costs are going down. Pulp costs are going down. Material costs are falling, and they expect to see that start showing up, those falling costs in their earnings reports soon. So really, yes, Inflation can be transitory, and it literally, reading off the headline number means nothing. It tells you nothing about what's happening with inflation. What's much better is, again, looking at a company like Chipotle and seeing it's easier for them to hire, that they don't have to raise wages as much as they had. Looking at a company like Walmart and going, sure, they've raised wages, but they also lagged Target for years, and they've been losing money for years, so no wonder they were slow to start raising wages. Uh, The big thing, in my opinion is looking at what is inflation doing. Energy costs have retreated, core goods have gone down, the housing market is cooling, wages are starting to cool, nothing is spiraling out of control. Nothing suggests that we're actually expecting to see inflation continue uh, at, 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 this, uh, at this insane rate uh, that we've been seeing. Again, that's not to say it can't come up. It's not at all to say that inflation can't end up surprising. But inflation, as long as it continues on this trend, can absolutely end up proving to be transitory. And instead, what markets are pricing in right now is the fear that the Federal Reserve is going to actually continue to hawk during an environment uh, where inflation and inflationary concerns have actually gone away and prices actually are coming down, and yet you still have a Fed that ends up hawking, which potentially leads to a, a deeper recession. That seems to be what the market is more concerned about right now than actually inflation running away. Again, could there be concerns about inflation picking up again? Yeah, absolutely. Again, we showed this where we talk about the Cleveland FED and the Cleveland FED's Inflation Now Index showing month over month Uh, uh, CPI reads potentially rising again. Now that could be because this is not a core measure. This is just a headline number of month over month numbers, uh, which measure energy costs more heavily going uh, into inflation. So yeah, absolutely. Inflation can go up again, but the argument that, oh, inflation can't be transitory. The headline number is at 6% is not a logical statement it's 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 a statement that is not based in reality because again you're looking at the past you're not looking at what the market or 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 inflation has done in terms of inflecting down and trending down uh and when you're on a downward trend, inflation can be transitory as long as the trend holds that's what matters comparing to the base effects of last year which are, are higher uh although they start falling over the next few months is 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 not uh is not a logical way to talk about inflation uh let's see here. Then we've got, uh, let's see here, eventually the consumer is going to break, lumber can go down, but if the consumer can't afford it really puts uh, the data in conundrum. Well, this is why the market is starting to price in the fear that eventually we are going to break the economy and, and, and the consumers will stop spending. It's why you're seeing sort of FedEx and, and UPS freak out over concerns that, oh, no, what if, uh, what if uh, um, you know, people just stop spending money, right? <laughs> that's, that's obviously a big deal. Uh, if people stop spending money, then, yeah, you end up going into uh, recessionary environments. And, and that's scary. Uh, because then obviously you end up in a situation where you have substantially uh, uh, lower earnings at companies and the stock market has to price that in because multiples look high. So multiples compress. You're paying less for growth because there is less growth. Uh, And then you get this self-fulfilling trend of stocks go down. So everybody shorts them and they go down even more. I mean, that's just called a bear market. As soon as people start making money shorting, everybody wants to short because they tell all their friends, go short. (laughs) You know, it makes sense. Uh, So... Let's talk briefly about the ADP numbers. ADP. Okay, so uh, this morning we got uh, the ADP jobs report. Now, what's fascinating is we were expecting a survey uh, of one hundred eighty thousand jobs. The prior release was two hundred thirty-five thousand. Uh, the two thirty-five from the last report in the ADP report was actually revised up to two hundred fifty-three. Now, what's remarkable about that? is uh, you had a revision up, which implies, oh no, that's bad, right? More hiring implies stronger economy, which means more Fed tightening. But what you've actually had is a massive miss on today's read. We were expecting 180,000 jobs. What did we end up getting? We ended up getting 106,000 jobs. Uh, 106,000 versus uh, 180,000. It's a pretty big miss in the ADP employment report. Uh, we'll actually go look at the individual report uh, right here. So this is the ADP report, 106,000 jobs of the uh, uh, private, U.S. private jobs report estimate. Now, keep in mind, the ADP report is put together by a private company. And what I think is great about the ADP report is it kind of serves as a little bit of a checking tool on what the Bureau of Labor Statistics does. because. The Bureau of Labor Statistics counts jobs in a very weird way. They use two different surveys, the Establishment Survey and the Household Survey. The Establishment Survey really double counts people who uh, work multiple jobs. And there's still a gap of about 2 million jobs created between the two surveys. And a lot of folks, including the Philadelphia Federal Reserve, Goldman Sachs, and the ADP report, suggest that the Bureau of Labor Statistics is saying the jobs market is a lot hotter than it actually truly is. And that would induce the Federal Reserve to tighten more than they actually should. But they're making a big mistake in doing so. So the ADP report, I think, is a really nice tool for essentially fact-checking the Federal Reserve. And and I enjoy looking at, uh, well, not just the Federal Reserve, but also mostly the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And I enjoy looking at it, although it can be quite different from the uh, sort of establishment Employment report, which the next employment report will come out on February 3rd. Uh, that is Friday morning. February 3rd is what we've uh, extended the final coupon code to for the programs on building your wealth. Link down below. 11.59 PM on the 3rd will be the official final expiration. Uh, and, uh, and again, that was inspired by people emailing saying, hey, I'm waiting for some trades to settle or, or whatever. We're waiting for to close a home. And they're like, can we extend it just for a few days? And so we've uh, extended that on to everyone. But anyway, private sector employment here increased by 106,000 jobs in January. Annual pay was up 7.3%. Again, this reflects a year-over-year comparison. And see, look at this. This is why I am telling you the inflection point is what matters. I didn't even know what this report said yet, but look at what it says. Pay growth was flat in January. Pay growth for job stayers held at 7.3% for a second month, and most industries were little changed. An outlier was the information sector where pay growth actually decelerated from 7% to 6.6%. In other words, your, your month over month changes was, were flat. We're just still comparing to where pay was lower a year ago, and we're not actually seeing an acceleration in pay growth. So yet another measure and yet another tool telling us that we're not actually seeing a wage-price spiral where wages are running away. If anything, they're flat uh, in in sort of a more month-over-month month comparison. Pay growth is flat, and uh, in some cases like IT, you're actually seeing pay growth fall. Now we could sit here and you know stick our fingers in our ears and close our eyes and go na 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 seven point three percent still high, it's still high. It's not how markets work. And it's fine. If you want to stick your head in the sand and, and, and be of the mindset that, uh, uh, oh, well, well, the number's high, therefore we're screwed, fine. But I think you're ignoring reality. And the reality is that uh, ultimately, as uh, uh, prices stabilize, yes, for a period of time, they are going to look uh, like they are still elevated. That is totally normal. It is totally normal. In fact, let me give you a very simple e- uh, example because I, I I don't think I've been clear enough. So I'll provide a very simple example, and I can't get there. There we go. I got that to work. Okay. So a very simple example is let let's just draw this out for everyone since I I, I think it it gets it's it's just it, I haven't made it simple enough. So these are the months. Okay. One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Okay, let's say there are 10 months. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't wanna do that. I, I wanna actually do the full, full year because otherwise it'll just confuse people and we don't wanna confuse people. So we're writing on a piece of paper from left to right, one through 12. That's all we're doing, okay? And let's say that Meet Kevin, instead of raising prices for his courses every three weeks, only did so once a year, okay? And so let's say that the year is uh, 2020. Okay. It's 2020, let's say. So red is going to be the 2020 line and Kevin, let's say keeps his prices flat for his courses until September. And in September, Kevin raises the prices for his courses about 10%, right? So assume this line is mostly flat right here. There we go. That's pretty flat. And Kevin raises the prices for his course instantly 10%. Uh, and now all of a sudden it stays flat. Well, what would the data show you? Well, the data would show you that between September and October, there was a 10% hike in prices. But between October and November, what was the appreciation in the prices? Well, it was 0%. You had 0% inflation between October and November because prices stayed stable. So you had flat growth. Between November and December, what was the growth? Zero. It was flat growth. The month over month data is flat, okay? Okay. Now, we go into the next year. And this is where we start suffering from something that people don't understand called base effects, okay? So now we go into January of, let's call it uh, 2023, right? Or sorry, 2021 in this example. So it's 2021, we draw a purple line, and all of a sudden now prices are up here, which is in line where prices were raised in September of the prior year. But now, you compare January to January, and people are like, oh my gosh, prices are up 10%. inflation, oh my God, this is terrible. How could inflation possibly be transitory? And guess what? The same numbskulls are saying the same thing in February. Oh my gosh, prices are up 10%, this is insane. And they say the same thing in March and April and May and June and July because all they're doing is comparing to the prior stupid year. And they're saying, oh my gosh, prices are higher 10%. And this is where the people who actually have an understanding of finance or, or, or math and this is very simple, are like, dude, the price has changed one time. Now it's 0%, 0%, 0%, 0%, 0%, 0% on a month over month basis. This is why it's so important to look at the month over month data, because the year over year number, uh, is, is really heavily affected by base effects. Uh, and when you ignore, uh, what's actually happening on the month over month basis, you get really, really confused because you're not paying attention to logic anymore. And so this is where for an entire year, you could have people going, oh my gosh, inflation is so high, it's so high. Yeah, because you're comparing again to a low. Oh my gosh, it's so high, the world's gonna end. But if on a month over month basis, it ain't changing much, then you don't have an inflation problem. The last six months, inflation has averaged less than 2% on a month over month basis. Less than 2% for the last six months. And yet people are still screaming, but the headline number says 6%. It's just, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how the markets work. And it's exactly why when you look at the ADP report and it says that pay growth was flat in January. Yes, the base effect number of 7.3% year over year is still high, but it shows you that it's not increasing relative to the last month. In fact, it's staying flat, which is the same thing that I just showed you. If anything, you're actually seeing certain areas decelerate. This is good. These are the good news things that we want to see. Multiple inflation reports coming in negative, especially on the month-over-month basis. Retail sales coming in negative. Employment reports coming in lower than expected. Uh, These are good things. In fact, we just got the JOLTS report, literally, uh, uh, actually, no, the JOLTS report, I'm sorry, the JOLTS report comes out in an hour and 10 minutes. Uh, the Jolts report, some folks say not the best measure because it's a little inflated. In fact, Goldman Sachs just did a big piece on how the Jolts report is, uh, is, is, uh, overestimating how many job openings we actually have. You've got, uh, a survey of a 10.3 million job openings expected. People think that number is actually a lot lower. Uh, we want it to be closer to a one-to-one ratio, which would be closer to about six to six and a half million. That means job openings would match about the number of unemployed, but, uh, uh, most importantly, look, the ADP report here is showing us that so far we are not seeing a wage price spiral. And that has been consistent with not just what Bloomberg economists are suggesting in multiple reports showing, look, we're not seeing evidence of a wage price spiral, but it's also consistent with uh, the numbers that we see uh, or have seen in, in prior labor reports. I mean, we could go back to the beginning of, of January and uh, we could look at uh, some of the uh, changes in in non-farm payroll and our average hourly earnings. And uh, in uh, the average hourly earnings report for January, which is actually based on December numbers, we actually had the average hourly earnings come in, again, less than expected on a month-over-month basis. We were expecting 0.4%. We got 0.3%. We got a revision down on the November data, on uh, on jobs, right? So, I mean, like, start writing some of these things down. ECI, lower than expected. ADP, lower than expected. ADP wage growth, flat. Uh, November uh, wage growth per the Bureau of Labor Statistics. What did we get for November wage growth per the Bureau of Labor Statistics? Well, we actually ended up getting a revision uh, a revision to 0.4 instead of the 0.6 that was previously reported. Revised down to point four from uh, 0.6, which an annualized rate would be about 4.8%, still higher than 2%, understandably a problem. But what happened in December with wage growth on a month over month basis? Well, the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out with 0.3%, which works out to 3.6% on an annualized basis. So it's clearly slowing. And it reiterates what we're hearing with Chipotle suggesting it's becoming easier to hire and they're not seeing as much wage pressure as they have been. The same is true is in what you're seeing with uh, industrial layoffs. Industrial layoffs frequently associated with uh, a a uh, bottom in markets and a recession. And industrial layoffs starting to to jump at companies like uh, 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 well, three M talking about layoffs, but then also Dow Industrials starting to lay off folks. So you start seeing industrial layoffs. It's a red flag that you're in a recession. But uh, the peak of industrial layoffs in a good news case. Uh, Seem to align with the bottom of the stock market in both of the last two large recessions, the dot-com bubble and the Great Recession, ignoring the COVID pandemic for a moment. But continuing again here with the ADP report, what do you have? Well, you have natural resource mining uh, and, and sort of goods producing here leading uh, wage growth. Service, though, uh, service showing you that still the hottest sector of wage growth is leisure and hospitality, which, to some degree, it still makes sense. Now, we're not trying to explain away an inflationary concern because prices going up in leisure and hospitality are an issue. You do fortunately have United and Southwest Airlines telling us that they're prepared for a deflationary fight and reducing prices if necessary. We understand that from actually reading the earnings reports. But one of the problems that you face uh, is not just necessarily this potential price war that could be coming to travel, but you still face this issue that the travel sector is still smaller today by 10 to 15 percent than it was in 2019. So what you have is you have people that have a lot more money than they used to have. So they have a lot more money than they used to have. And what are you stuck with? Well, you're stuck with a smaller industry while people have more money. Of course, you're still seeing inflation in the leisure and hospitality sector. And we hope that starts rotating down because it is a concern. Don't get me wrong. You know, I don't want to be Mr. Oh, look, it's proving to be transitory. It's definitely going down because there are risks that inflation still goes up. But we have to look at the real data. And when we look at the real data, it's like, damn, this is looking really good so far. Now, does that mean the Fed is going to talk nice to us and try to create a bubble economy again? Of course not. The Fed's probably going to be pretty neutral because they don't want to push us into a recession unnecessarily, but they also don't want to uh, loosen financial conditions unnecessarily to where, uh, you know, everybody goes back to YOLO and meme stocks, uh, which, you know, uh, (laughs) which for some reason still seems to happen. Uh, uh, You know, uh, interestingly, financial conditions are loosening a little bit ahead of the Fed meeting. You've got the 10-year Treasury dropping to about 3.46%. It's actually something good for... um, real estate seeing the 10-year yield fall. But uh, I I keep going back to this idea that it's so stupid to me making bets on bankrupt companies or companies that are going bankrupt, like Bed Bath and Beyond. I think every time a meme stock rallies up, I'm like, what are you doing? This is stupid. And I say, make your money, but make sure you get out. Do not hodl these stupid momentum stocks. It's dumb because it's the most simple story ever. The volume chart goes up, price goes up. As soon as the volume chart goes down, what happens? The price goes down. It's so simple. It happens over and over and over again. And yet people still post about how much money they're losing on Reddit, about how they bought thinking this thing was going to go to $10 and they bought it $5.70. Now it's half that and they've lost half of their investment in a matter of a few days. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. People still do it. But then again, people still don't understand how, yes, even with headline numbers, inflation can prove to be transitory. Blows my mind. But anyway, uh, goods producing, we actually see some layoffs here according to the uh, ADP report in construction, uh, which is actually quite interesting because the um, uh, A.R.E., which is a real estate company, they just reported earnings and we went through their earnings report and they talked about how construction is slowing and uh, fewer clients are interested in starting projects design, uh, is, is substantially slowing down as a potential, uh, contributor, which I think is a little bit of a red flag for Autodesk. So in a weird way, again, this is why I read earnings calls, whether we talk about them on our course member live streams, which you get lifetime access to if you join extended coupon code to February 3rd, uh, or you, you watch my videos here. We read earnings calls all the time because they're really important. And ARE real estate tells us that more construction workers are available, that more general contractors and subcontractors are looking for work, material prices are deflating and coming down, and design, which is a leading indicator of less construction spending, is falling. So you have yet another deflationary indicator uh, from, from uh, you would never think about it, but a REIT, a real estate investment trust, is telling you that uh, you are seeing uh, inflationary pressures decline. You are seeing UPS suggest that e-commerce once again is weakening and UPS is projecting a turbulent year and suggesting a year of resilience. And that's because they got way too many drivers and way too few goods to actually ship because fewer people for whatever reason, whether they're going back to stores or they're Uh, uh, you know, people are spending less money, are falling. So fewer shipments at UPS means they've got potentially more loose supply chains, but they're so loose now that their earnings are actually going bad. Now, then you also have GM, which GM on one hand says that their products are priced properly and they don't need to reduce the prices for their vehicles. On one hand, they say they're not preparing for a price war Don't expect any kind of deflation or price cuts. Yet, on the other hand, they talk about how there is going to be a steady increase of incentives and discounting. In other words, they're not expecting a price war, but they're expecting a discounting war. They're talking through their ASS because they don't want people to wait for those discounts to come and potentially screw their dealer network by suggesting, yeah, we're going to be increasing discounts in the future. But let's be real, when you actually read the earnings call, you're like, these people are about to start discounting. That's pretty dang normal after all. That is what companies do when you go into a recession. So that's normal. (laughs) Uh, So uh, again, uh, uh, you know, you've got a lot of companies reporting these sort of deflationary aspects. Even Winnebago refuses to tell you how much they plan to cut prices. But they say they stand by and ready to cut prices if necessary, if the competition starts doing it or material prices start coming down more. That's the same exact thing that essentially uh, GM is telling you. Sure, again, we're not preparing for a price war, but we are preparing to discount more. <laughs> is what, uh, what you're getting from, uh, uh, from GM. Uh, so, uh, you know, here, here's, here's, um, uh, here's just an example so I can show it to you on screen. Okay. So Paul Jacobson from GM says, look, yeah. Okay. We're not contemplating big price increases this year. They're kind of like teasing, like, oh, we might raise prices. Uh, they're not going to, but then what they are saying is we're not going to get into the specifics of what we're doing, but let's just say nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We are assuming that there's going to be some steady increased normalization of incentives. That's where we said we're trying to plan conservatively. Oh, don't worry. Demand is strong. But yeah, we, um, we're definitely planning for more discounts. <laughs> like, of course you are. <laughs> because that's what happens in recessions. Super normal. People cut prices in recessions. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, you know, GM's also talking about lower material costs. Uh, you are seeing uh, the, the same thing at, uh, at McDonald's even that we expect by the second half uh, inflation to be lower in the United States, uh, especially on things like paper goods, which, again, I talked about looking at the uh, um, international paper company and, and, and their uh, earnings report showing pulp, lumber. Uh, prices all coming down, input costs for paper coming down. Uh, however, there is also the potential red flag that maybe you get spikes of inflation in Europe. I mean, consider the fact that you have Spain uh, that uh, that has inflation uh, that actually came in higher than expected, right? They were expecting 5% inflation and, and inflation ended up coming at 5.8%. So there is the risk of inflation popping up again. But so far, it's not one that we're actually seeing uh, but we want to pay close attention to that in the United States. And again, I, I don't think the Fed would be right to uh, at all loosen their anger towards getting inflation down, so to speak, and talking nice to us, because that would be silly. They shouldn't do that. So anyway. All right. Let's look at uh, l- some uh, some more here. Let's see here. Let's see here. Okie dokie, okie, okie, dokie, okie. What else do we have? Uh 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 oh. Uh. Um, pay for, okay, let me see, Max, what you're talking about. I only grabbed the last ADP report. So, last month, and this month, uh, okay, worth noting. So, let, let me make a quick note about that. I think that's a good point. Uh, one sec. Now, one more thing that is worth noting is that, yeah, there can be red flags that come up. So, in the last ADP report, which I just pulled up, we uh, found that the pay for job changers was 15.2%. There is a slight concern uh, in that we did have a slight increase here to 15.4% in January per the ADP report for job changers. And so, while... A lot of things are green, a lot of green shoots, a lot of indicators of no wage price spiral. There are still going to be embers, embers of areas where we still have work to do. Job changers is one of those. Though it's worth noting that the change from 15.2 to 15.4 represents a change in that number of 1.3%, right? So it's, it's roughly in line with the prior, uh, but, but it is a change. Uh, it's definitely a change. Compare that, though, to the deceleration from 6.6 to uh, from 7. That deceleration up here represents a 5.4% change. So you do have some some larger changes. Uh, and you've got a lot of good news, but you want to pay attention to the embers as well. Because obviously the embers uh, can continue to um, uh, lead to an aggressive Fed. All right, let's keep going with some Q and A here. Ooh, oh, oh, oh okay. So if prices are rising in countries abroad, especially in countries that the U.S. imports from combined with the weakening dollar, does this not mean higher inflation in the United States? So the thesis here is what about imported inflation? In other words, if inflation rises in Europe, uh, then doesn't it become more expensive to to buy things in the United States uh, if we're importing things from Europe? In other words, if there's more inflation for Mercedes dealerships. Uh, in Europe or Mercedes manufacturing in Europe, is that not a potential imported inflation uh, to the United States? And and of course it is, absolutely. Uh, And and this is where what you really need is to see, uh, for, in my opinion, imported inflation to be an issue, you need to see a rise in basically everyone's prices. Because ultimately, if Mercedes costs become higher, they're potentially hamstrung and can't raise prices in America, if they're trying to actually compete with companies who are reducing prices or who are more efficient, like potentially, dare I say, GM, but even Tesla. So there's a limit to how much you could really import inflation. You kind of really need inflation to rise everywhere at, 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 together, uh, synchronously. Or potentially, you say, everywhere in the rest of the world, inflation is rising. But that's not actually really what we're seeing. Sure, sure, you have potentially inflation coming in a little hotter than expected in Spain, but 5.8% is still lower than what we have in America. Sure, you have high inflation in Turkey because they completely mismanaged monetary policy. But then you look at Brazil and inflation's lower than the inflation rate is in America. What's up? Like who would expect that Spain and Brazil have lower inflation than America? It's crazy. So yeah, of course, imported inflation is definitely a risk. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see here. So, mm-hmm. we're going to look at which countries U.S. imports the most from. Yeah, I mean, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, you can do that as well. Uh, YOLO meme-, meme stocks was always a thing before the pandemic. It just wasn't as popularized because not everybody was sitting on Robinhood, but they would just call them penny stocks back in the day. But people would do meme stock. Momentum. Momentum was a big thing before. You know, it's, meme stock is just sort of like the more uh exaggerated version of it uh let's see here <laughs> all the tech bros have to go work out uh work at Chipotle now <laughs> that's funny Let's see. Oh, camera's doing the little blurring thing here. Unfortunately, my paychecks are still getting eaten up, and we haven't dealt with winter yet. Yeah, I, I, am not like trying not to empathize with you having less purchasing power. Don't get me wrong. You have less purchasing power. I, I'm, I'm not here to tell you that you should feel richer because inflation is starting to inflect down. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. I, I'm not here. To throw a pity party for your real purchasing power going down. Everyone's incomes are going down on a real level. And most business owners are making less money today. We could throw a pity party uh, together in a different video about that. But when we're talking about inflation, inflation is starting to inflect down. And that's great. Now, does that mean every business owner should feel happy because uh, now all of a sudden they, they should be making more money or their incomes should be worth more? No, of course not, because that's not actually what's happening. We still have to deal with those higher costs. But that's different from talking about monetary policy in the Federal Reserve. Uh let's see. Crypto Lifer, you desire to collab with me. Well, thank you for the $20. Uh what do you want to What do you want to collab on, you stuck Stephro? Uh are you planning on buying a Cybertruck when it comes out later this year? I actually don't think it'll be mass market available, quite frankly, until next year. I don't think so. Yeah, let's see here. Global economy is due for a recession. Coca-Cola does not deliver correctly. They miss my orders, and they send a new truck driver every week. They have problems. That sounds like a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's that's also annoying. Like when you cut when you have a lot of labor turnover, uh, it, it's it, it, because people don't know what they're doing. Then, well, it makes sense. You have a bunch of new employees. Of course, they don't know what they're doing. We we is not getting fifty points. Uh, I I would put like ninety nine percent. I would put ninety nine percent on that. No fifty basis point. I'd be surprised. The Brazilian real, we were actually looking at this yesterday. It's actually been pretty stable since the pandemic against the dollar. Like what, 19 cents, 19 to 21 cents. It's been, it's been range bound there. And they have a stable inflation. It's actually been pretty interesting how stable it's been. Uh, You really like my New York Stock Exchange vest. How can I get one? You know, what we're actually probably going to do is order a bunch of vests like that and then we'll sell them. So soon, uh, you'll be able to get them uh, because we are getting the same ones with our um, connection from from uh, the New York Stock Exchange. Really, shout out to the New York Stock Exchange. We really like them, uh, and so we'll you'll we'll obviously brand. Them. We'll probably just put like a peepee on them because you know wh- why would you not want a vest with a peepee on it? Like <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see here. When do interest rates stop negatively impact, impacting the economy? I mean, it takes a while. It takes a while for interest rates to flow through. You know, this could be 6 to 12 months. Chance of zero today? Uh, probably also zero. So I think it's like 98%, 25 BP, 1% zero, 1% 50. When Brazil is doing better than America, we need to stop and think. Uh eh. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up seeing our inflation fall below theirs very quickly. Yes, worked with seller financing before. Uh, can you me some cons or things to be careful of when I buy a property with seller financing? I mean, if you're buying with seller financing, I, 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 like, I would never do seller financing as a seller. I think that's dumb. But sure, I mean, if you're going to buy a property with seller financing, just... I mean... Make sure you lock your interest rate and it's uh, there's no prepayment penalty in my opinion. That's what I always like looking for is, is no prepayment penalty. That way, if you want to refinance to conventional, you can do so. <laughs> I work in investment banking. If you put too much marketing, they might not like that. Um, it won't be too much. It'll be very, very little. Very, very little small. I've been seeing a lot less a day in the life of ex-employees on videos. Those are getting so much hate right now. It's hilarious. Like, people were going back to all the, like, day in the life at Google, day in the life at Twitter or whatever. People were like, how's your day in life now? Did you get laid off? <laughs> you know? And it, it really kind of showed the insane excesses uh, that that you had. I mean, it, it almost felt like people weren't even working anymore. It just felt ridiculous. I, I mean... Uh, I, I think that broadly it's become very difficult for people to actually honor working hard. Uh, and, and I think the thesis for many is how can I get through the day? How can I skirt through the day and make it look like I worked do maybe an hour or two of work and, and get very little done. It's, it's very kind of depressing, uh, how little people actually value work. Uh, and, uh, uh and, and, and I think it's rewarding. Uh, to work hard and, and, then, and then see your work have an impact, uh, you know, but, but not everybody has that mindset and that's okay. And if anything, I get to say thank you to that because look, if other people worked as hard as I did, it would be harder for me to make money. So uh, thank you. Thank you to all the people who work less hard uh, than me and don't employ all the strategies that I do because it makes it easier for me to make money. So I appreciate that. All right. Let's see what the Peton report is. Okay. Come on, Peloton. All right. Here we go. All right, let's see what Peloton has to complain about. Peloton, loss of 122 mil. The estimated loss was 108 mil, so they lost more money than expected. Their forecast loss is also greater than expected, quite a bit greater than expected, 50.6 mil versus a previous estimate of about 42 on the midpoint. Uh, Oh my God, digital paid subscribers came in at 852 versus an estimate of 940. Holy smokes that is a huge miss on paid subscribers that's a that's like a nine and a half percent miss on paid subscribers. that's terrible. Q3 revenue actually they expect to be slightly higher than expectations but that's not helping with the uh, the Ebit no longer plans to sell Precore. they had such good potential with Precore. I mean they're m- morons for not taking advantage of that pre-core better. And suggesting that they were even going to sell it, connected fitness subscriptions up four percent at the midpoint, duh, because people are trying to save more money because we're going into a recession, macroeconomic uncertainty. Uh, although now they're not forecasting a spike in churn rate, it sounds to me like there's a, uh, a a spike in churn rate. I don't know; these numbers look terrible. But watch the stock's probably going up. <laughs> That's because the stock market is topsy turvy. Uh, yeah, it's actually up 5% in the pre-market. The numbers are absolutely terrible. That's funny. I mean, that's just the nature uh, of of these numbers here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, compared to these consensus numbers here, everything was worse. But now they're bragging about their turnaround efforts. Whatever. That doesn't make much sense to me. I was busy helping build a cloud via automation as was working with people doing blog posts. Ooh. Lisa Su, AMD CEO. Okay, we'll listen to it and then we'll go to the course member
1: live. We just launched our fourth generation Epic with Genoa, Um, you know, extremely um, strong uh, performance, uh, total cost of ownership for data center providers. And so yes, on the overall, we believe that, you know, data center and embedded will grow for us in 2023. Now, there are some near-term adjustments in inventory for some of the largest uh, cloud manufacturers, which by the way, you should expect given just how strong 2022 was in terms of a demand environment. So, we do expect um, some near-term inventory adjustments over the first half of the year, uh, but we've made progress in PCs. So I know that there's been a lot of um, questions about PCs. Uh, We do believe that the first quarter is the bottom for PCs. And we believe very much in our product portfolio and the strategy that, um, that we put together. So, yeah, that's that's what we're seeing as we go forward.
2: All right, let's go back to data center. Which again, you did say that a couple of cloud customers might have too much inventory. But I saw uh, your uh, your st- data center revenues up 42 percent year over year to 1.7 billion. I know you don't like to talk about competitors, and you have always told me not to talk about competitors. Lisa, Intel declined 33 percent year over year. But that's a competitor, and you can just say other competitors haven't done as well. This is a monumental delta for you. And I think at least, I'm not asking you to take a bow, but just tell me just how are you able to take share like this in an atmosphere where a lot of companies aren't able to really leapfrog over other companies.
1: I I think, Jim, this is all about product execution. I mean, you know, what we see with the largest data center providers, first of all, it's a fantastic, you know, long-term market. Um, You know, this is our big bet that we've made over the last five years. And we've been just uh, very clear that, you know, we're going to consistently execute and every generation is going to get better in terms of performance, capability. Um, One of the big things right now, um, Jim, as you can imagine, is overall sustainability and the fact that Um, We want to make sure that as we build these large data centers, that we do it um, in a way that's uh, very sustainable and very energy efficient. And that's what we've been focused on. So um, I'm proud of our execution. And now there's a lot more to do. And, you know, as we look forward to 2023, we have lots of products that are coming out. We announced a number of products um, earlier this year. And, you know, I view this as, you know, we just need to control uh, the things that we do control, which is our own execution and, and really deep partnerships with um, you know, some of the, the largest cloud customers in the world.
0: Uh, uh, but, of course, of the things you can't control, uh, Lisa, you talked about a, a better second half of the year when it comes to a cloud inventory. Are there things in the macro that need to go right to make that happen?
1: Well, uh, Carl, certainly we're always watching the macro environment. And, you know, there are lots of puts and takes um, as you uh, as you look through, um, you know, what may happen as we go through the year. I think from what we see, though, what we see is there are. Um, you know more workloads. There are more um, capabilities that um, AMD will be able to address as we go forward in the data center um, and in the cloud. And so uh, we, we view that as um, you know positive for us. And sure, we'll be affected um, you know a bit by the macro like everyone else will. Um, but we think that even in this environment, uh, you know we see a strong path to you know continue to grow share and grow our partnerships, um, you know with the uh, with our customers.
2: Uh, Lisa then, but to those who would say, given what you've just uh, told us in terms of the macro environment and say, listen, following multiple years, of very strong double digit uh, top line growth, you're going to be hard pressed to grow top line in 2023. What do you say?
1: Well, uh, David, what I would say is we have um, a lot of positives in terms of the product portfolio. Uh, We believe that um, that's been the key for uh, our business and our growth has been the strength of our product portfolio and our ability to gain share. We are a, a very diversified company now. So. Uh, we very much like our data center exposure, as well as our broad embedded exposure uh, that came from the Xilinx acquisition. And, you know, we're watching the macro, especially as it re- re- uh, relates to, you know, PCs and gaming, which perhaps are you know, a bit more dependent on um, how the macro plays out um, over the year. But I think, you know, overall, we like the position that we're in and, you know, we're very focused on um, execution as we go through the year.
2: Okay, so let's talk about embedded more because I think it's such a highlight, and the growth is rather extraordinary from when Xilinx was running the company. Uh, you're now into defense, into aerospace, industrial, auto. How are these markets doing versus, say, how we think the cyclical environment is in our country?
1: Well, I, I would tell you, Jim, that um, the um, the overall embedded markets for us, as you mentioned, aerospace and defense, industrial, healthcare. Um, automotive communications. You know, we have over 6,000 plus customers that we've brought in with the Xilinx acquisition. It's a very diversified portfolio. What we see is for each of these markets, they actually need more content, so they 're using you know more um, capability, more computing capability, and you know, we 're leading the industry uh, with um, our adaptive computing capability. so I really like what we have there. Um, I would also say that um, you know we have um, good visibility in terms of backlogs for um, you know these markets they tend to be uh, you know, much l- less uh, cyclical, I would say, than um, some of the um, the other, like the PC markets, and so on and so forth. So we feel very good about uh, the growth that we've seen there. We expect to grow as we go into the first quarter, and um, you know, we believe that you know here is another place where our market, um, you know, Sam, our overall market capability is expanding. And uh, we'll continue to uh, invest in this market going forward. You know, one of the things, Jim, I'll tell you is in the fourth quarter, our data center embedded businesses were over 50 percent of our revenue. So it is a a very nice mix of revenue for us.
2: All right. One last question. Uh, Elevated levels, uh, inventory cloud. I want to go back to that, uh, but better uh, in the second half. What gives you the visibility to be better in the second half? Because when I see elevated now, after I saw it in gaming, I saw it in PC, I have to be a little bit more skeptical than I was at one point.
1: Well, the the nice thing about this is, you know, we really partner very deeply with our customers. And as you know, these cloud customers are planning, you know, for their full year. And so, you know, we've been uh, very much uh, working with them on what, um, you know, their uh, various patterns are. And the way to think about it is um, each one is different, but at the end of the day, we need more compute um, in the industry. And we see them moving more and more of their computing capabilities in their data centers to AMD. So um, I think we feel good about our positioning. And, you know, again, Uh, There are uh, many things that have to play out in terms of the macro, uh, but in terms of our product positioning and, um, you know, where we are in terms of the design environment, uh, we feel very good about our um, overall uh, positioning.
2: Well, Lisa, I want to thank you for coming on the show.
0: It's kind of interesting. You know, uh, one of the reasons AMD beat as well as they did was because of cloud and, uh, you know, uh, kind of of interesting. We'll see – We'll see how cloud ends up holding up, especially as we get into a decade of probably AI here. You know, there's a lot of talk about potentially Moore's law being dead and, uh, you know, ultimately uh, an unnecessary uh, growth in, uh, in in the chip sector. But uh, I, I don't think we're anywhere near that, especially since we have a, a lot of uh, cloud computing uh, technologies uh, demanding ever more uh, processing power on sort of a daily basis almost. I think as uh, fiber optic internet connections spread throughout the world, the things that we can do with cloud compute, even cloud gaming become uh, remarkable uh, and more and more powerful every day. Uh, And then even the move into quantum computing will be quite fascinating for the next 20 years. Uh, We'll probably see a lot more of quantum computing. I think IBM's working on releasing their first quantum computer later this year. Kind of remarkable. Anyway, uh, very excited about the chips world. We will see you all in the next one. Thank you so much for being here. We did again extend the coupon code to Friday for those of you who have asked. Uh, yeah, just go to metkevin.com/join, and uh, that's uh, that'll be it for a while. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.